Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. More about them later. Now if you can remember back to 20 years ago nearly, without a doubt the attack on the World Trade Center in 2001 remains one of the most shocking events in American and world history. As we approach the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, it was important for me to speak to somebody who could share their first-hand experience in a bid to keep the voices, spirits and memories alive of the 3,000 victims who lost their lives that day. Today I'm joined by Joe Dittmar, who on September 11th, 2001, was attending a normal business meeting just like me and you on the 105th floor of the South Tower of the World Trade Center. Now, before that meeting began, a plane hit the North Tower and he and his colleagues watched the aftermath from the South Tower window. 17 minutes later, while he was evacuating the building from the stairs, another plane hit the tower he was in. Joe is here today, thankfully, to tell his story and the events of the day as they unfolded around him. Well, apart from uh, obvious dates like the date of my first born and the date of my first wedding, which are dates we all should remember, there were two specific dates in my life that I I know exactly where I was sat and exactly what I was doing on these dates. One of them was the death of Princess Diana, and the other one was on September the 11th in 2001, where I was sat having a coffee at a serviced office in Cairo on the River Nile and just getting my kind of thoughts together after a couple of important meetings and what come up on the TV screen in this little canteen, beggared belief. And today, Joe, hopefully we can talk about what happened on that day and the impact it had on you and the many people around the world that were also impacted, but also how that changed people's lives as well. Because for me, <clears throat> in, you know, in my years, I'm 51 years old, so it's 20 years ago, at 31 years old, I'd never, <clears throat> I'd never seen stuff like this. I'd never experienced stuff like this. And you know, I would listen to stories of my, my grandparents who were in the Second World War when they would speak of such extreme atrocities in Dunkirk and stuff like that. And so for me, it was the first time of really, really feeling it. So in your words, well, first of all, thanks for coming to join us on the show. But in your words, tell us what happened. Yeah, I'll, you uh, go to New York to attend a meeting. Uh, you wind up on the 105th floor of Two World Trade Center uh, with a group of 54 people. And all of a sudden, your life turns around uh, by a simple act that you have no clue what's going on. We were in an enclosed conference room uh, that morning on 105, and uh, we couldn't see anything because of that, didn't hear anything, couldn't feel anything. The lights in the room flickered, and immediately a gentleman uh, from Aon Corporation, the company that we were visiting, uh, came into the room, said, we got to evacuate. There's been an explosion in the North Tower. Uh, All of us reacted the same way. 54 type A businessmen, right? And uh, we're going to have our meeting. It's New York. Everything's fine. Let us go. We'll be fine. But he got everybody out of the room that day. I, it was uh, uh, amazing that uh, he was able to convince everybody. And I know he got everybody out of the room because I was the last person 
out of the room that morning. And that started our descent out of the building and our discovery of what was going on that day. So there you are on the 105th floor, which is mighty high up. Um, <laughs> elevators still take a while to get to that floor. Over in Dubai, where I live, we have the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building. And I know that it takes a while to get up to the, to the higher floors. So the obvious route for you was to jump in the elevator and get down, but not having that option, it was a staircase. And when you don't know what's going on, were you thinking in that moment, holy macaroni, I've got 105 flights of stairs to get down? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, again, not knowing all these people and myself included were like, "My, yeah, we're going to walk down 105 flights of steps. Are you kidding me? That kind of was, come on, we can do this faster if we go over to the elevator banks and the gentleman that was in charge of the getting evacuation said, listen, you got to go down the staircase. This is the way to go. And all of us were really kind of ticked off. We all grabbed for our cell phones. We couldn't call anybody because the cell tower for the main, well, the main cell tower for all of Southern Manhattan was on top of the North tower, which was the building that just had been hit. So cell service was gone couldn't get to a landline. Everybody's kind of nicked about the fact that they can't communicate. And I'm sure your listeners are thinking to themselves, okay, didn't you know what was going on? And that was the point. That's exactly what the point was. None of us had a clue what was going on. Everyone that's listening knew way more what was going on inside or outside those buildings than any of us that were right there. We didn't have a clue. Not a clue. So when when did it dawn on you that something serious was going on? Did you did you see most people in the stairwell kind of huffing and puffing and going down like you guys, or, or was, it, was there was there rumors and noises about what was happening? Tell me what happened then. Uh, no no rumors. Everything was you know for the first fifteen floors, no big deal except uh, you know okay let's go let's move. We were at the highest occupied level of the building at that point. So there's nobody behind us. There's no big crowd. We're coming down from the end, as it were, okay? We got down to the 90th floor. The fire stairwell doors were propped open. They weren't supposed to be, but they were. And everybody in our fire stairwell started filing out onto the 90th floor. Now I'm in the fire insurance business, and I know better. Well, guess what? I didn't know the building. I didn't know where I needed to go, what was happening. So I left the, the fire stairwell at 90, looked out the windows to the north for the first time to see what was happening. It was the worst 30, 40 seconds of my life, I think. Uh, you see these huge gaping black holes through the sides of the building, gray and black billows of smoke pouring out of those holes, flames redder than any red I had ever seen in my life, looking up the side of the building. And you see all that and you see furniture and paper and people being pulled out of the building against their will. Gruesome sight, awesome sight. And, and I was so afraid. I had that immediate feeling of, you know, I want my mommy. I, I just wanted to go home. I didn't want to be there. It was a crystal clear day that day in New York City. Beautiful day. And I remember thinking as I'm standing there looking at this and thinking, how did this happen? We saw the fuselage of a large plane lodged inside, pieces of the fuselage of a large plane lodged inside this other building. I'm thinking, 
how did the pilot not see this building? How did he miss? Well, he didn't miss. He didn't miss. He did exactly what he wanted to do. And um, it was just an unbelievable, gruesome sight. I, um, I know that I just wanted to go. I, like I said, I was fearful. I was totally fearful. Still not knowing what this was. Aviation accident. That's what we assumed. Okay, and that's why my thought was, well, my God, how did he not see that plane before he plowed it, or that building before he plowed into it with the plane? Um, and there were people on that floor screaming at the top of their lungs and watching all this, yet they seemed to be frozen, whether they were frozen in fear, mesmerized by what they saw. Um, I knew I just wanted to get out. I wanted to leave. I wanted to go home. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go home. So when you came out of the building and you're seeing what you're seeing, what was your instinct telling you to do in that moment? What action did you take? Did you run? Did you stare? Did you, what did you, what do you do? What does anyone do in that moment? Um, human nature is kind of a funny thing. Um, when we, were able to finally get out of that complex, okay, and out of the buildings, and we were fortunate to be able to do that. Um, everything, every uniform that was there, every person that was there is screaming at us to run, run, run. Don't stop, don't stop, just run. So you do that, but then you get across the street from this complex and you turn around and you look at this incredible sight, this ticker tape of concrete, steel, and bodies, and you can't help it. You, you, you need to look at this, what, it, it, and, and it just becomes even that much more incredulous, and then you're forced to make the next decision, okay? What do I do now? And I was very fortunate to be with a, a work compatriot who I've continued to do business with to this day. Uh, and we made the determination that we were going to get out of the area as quickly as possible and get to his home. But we had no clue what was coming next. Now, we, we absolutely had no clue that within eight minutes of walking away from that complex, walking away from those buildings, the South Tower, the building that I had been in just eight minutes earlier, would come to the ground. It was an absolutely incredible moment because you just don't even think that's what's going to happen. And if you've been to New York, you understand what I mean, that the, the, the streets are like canyons. You can't necessarily see the top of any building. You can't necessarily see all the buildings because everything is so high around you. We didn't, again, realize that this was the collapse of the South Tower. We had just heard from a radio that was blaring from a laundry that we were passing that this was an on-purpose terrorist attack. Our jaws dropped to the ground when we heard this. This doesn't happen here. This doesn't happen in the U.S. This doesn't happen here. And it did. And then you hear that building come down and then you hear hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of New York all screaming the same blood-curdling scream all at the same time. 
unbelievable haunting when when I, I'm, okay, I'm 51 years old so I remember the towers before they were there I visited in the June of that year I was having dinner at Windows on the World uh, is that South or North Tower? That's North Tower 110 on the North Tower yeah 110 on the North Tower and I remember not wanting to go with my wife. I remember not wanting to go there with her. I was like, oh, man, what a drag that is. And then I remember being up there and looking at the view across the city. And I'd never been so high in a building in my life. That was the tallest I'd ever been. And I remember looking around thinking, how cool would it be to work here? You know, how amazing <laughs> would it be to, to work in a place like this? And, you know, because I knew there were people in their suits, guys that were in the financial markets, which is the kind of area that I came from as well. And, um, so for, so for me, it's like, like I, I, a lot of people, I don't think, can, they think going to the, the top of a building and going down again is one thing. But there's, there's the whole ground floor areas, the whole kind of precinct, isn't there, that surrounds those towers. And so you don't just walk off the street straight into the tower and up. You've got, a, you know, you've got quite a stuff, stuff to go through. And so when I think about that, that, that day that I was there and then I saw what happened on the television, for me, it was... I think bigger for me than maybe people that hadn't visited it as, as in the area. And I couldn't imagine that building collapsing. I couldn't imagine a tower like that collapse. That's almost like a mountain collapsing. That's almost like right. something, something falling from the clouds. It's like, it's, it's that, that big when you're standing there. We saw on the television that there was a huge amount of um, ash uh, uh, and debris that was picked up and pushed all the way up Manhattan and, and up the streets. And a lot, a lot of people were, were running for that. Do you remember being and being part of that and seeing all of that going on? What was incredible for us that day, the wind was blowing very strong from north to south. So we were heading north purely by coincidence. But we're heading north. And when South Tower came down, we could turn around and it looked like that death cloud was right behind us, but it never reached us because the winds, the strong winds were pushing everything south and east. And that's where it did its um, uh, bidding. That's where it did its uh, damage, uh, that death cloud. We were very fortunate not to be in it, but you, it did. It felt like we could reach around and grab it. It, it came so close. When you were experiencing all of this, obviously there's, there's fear, there's terror, there's horror, there's, there's all of these emotions and feelings that you're feeling at the time. When did it dawn on you? How, how far had you got or how much time had elapsed when it dawned on you that there were, there were people dying? I think it dawned on me when I looked out from that 90th floor and saw what I saw. Because that was, when you see a human body being pulled by force, not by jumping or choice, but by force out of a building, and you see that body begin to tumble, you know this is a bad scene. Um, we also, when our building was struck, we went through that whole process of thinking, oh my God, what about the people behind us? Are they okay? Are they going to be all right? Um, when we saw and got down into the concourse level and saw people who were severely injured, missing limbs, gaping wounds, 
so you got reminders the whole time through your evacuation process that this was bad and there were humans involved and that there were lives being taken. Um, and there are two things that happen for you. You have that fear that takes over your body and then you have that survivor instinct that says, how can I make this not happen to me? And fortunately, if you follow your best knowledge, your best instincts, your best thoughts, you are able to be one of those who, who did survive. Uh, and I'm lucky to be one of them. Now, 3,000 people lost their lives that day, but 3,000 people multiplied by many more were impacted by what happened. And I'm sure that the numbers uh, of people that were impacted by the by family members passing or uh, friends uh, becoming injured must have been the, the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that were impacted. How long was it for you on your journey before you got angry and did you get angry maybe i'm different than everybody else but i never got angry uh i i, I got fearful uh thankful grateful um mesmerized and wondering why would anybody want to do this um but i i think for me getting angry, uh, you know, pinpointing an enemy and becoming angry and pointed at them. The thought that kept coming through my mind is it wasn't going to bring one of my friends or compatriots back by, by sharing that anger. So a little bit different than maybe some other people, certainly within the next 24, 48, 72 hours, when our government here decided, okay, we need to take some definitive action. We need to do something. We need to show a reaction that we are not going to take this. I certainly supported that. I also didn't think it was necessarily going to solve the problem because if you understand terrorism in the way it is, and once you know this was a terroristic act, this isn't a matter of just uh, if it will occur or when it, it's going to happen again. And it has happened again, maybe not in this, in this way. So you have to be more prepared to understand those that want to hate you for whatever reason and try to preact as opposed to react. So I have maybe a more philosophical approach at this, um, but I think it, the, the reason is because I've lived it. You know, you can get angry real fast, and we know people who have, and it doesn't get them a damn thing in the long run. Mm, yeah, I agree. How many people did you know that lost their lives? There were um, 54 of us in this meeting, and I directly or indirectly through business knew all of the other 53 and only seven of us survived from that meeting that day so i lost 47 friends 47 compatriots that day uh and it's a very very sad thing and losing somebody who is a friend is one thing but then as you mentioned a few minutes ago then having to talk with those who 
are the families of the victims who are looking for their mom or their dad or their sister or their aunt or their spouse days after the event. It's a, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough, these were tough phone calls. These were very tough conversations because all they wanted was to know that maybe, maybe there was a sliver of hope that their family member was alive. And those were difficult, those, like I said, were difficult conversations. I think a lot, a lot of the time for, for men in business, when you talk about colleagues, I think it underplays sometimes the deep relationships we have with people that we work with, you know, where we're agony aunts, buddies, um, you know, um, drinking partners, uh, or whatever it may be. You kind of, you, because you, for a lot of us guys, our work is our, our career is our life, you know, we become consumed by it. And so the, the, the friends that we make th- from our work, sometimes are some of the strongest friends we have and they're very, Absolutely. It's very, it's very real. And it's also very alive in that moment, isn't it? So for you to, out of 53, 47, uh, sorry, seven people go and 46 of you, yeah, 50, 46 of you left. It's um, every one of them. When you remember there's a, there's a quirky story. There's a, there's a, an interesting negotiation maybe that didn't didn't the, work out or someone that won over somebody the, in a the woman that, that, that ran the meeting uh, mary weeman um extremely uh successful woman and had risen through the ranks in the insurance business which is generally known even to this day to a degree as a boys game as opposed to uh women and men um but uh, she was a hoot and 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 had shamed me into attending the meeting in New York that day. I lived and worked in Chicago when all of this occurred. Okay. So I had been called in August by Mary to come to this meeting. I had a chance to be golfing business golf, of course. Okay. But golfing that same day. Um, and I kind of intimated to her that I couldn't make her meeting. And she did to me in that phone call, whatever woman has been doing to me since the day I was born. Good old fashioned Catholic guilt. Okay, sure, Joe, I understand you can't make our meeting. She stopped in the middle of her conversation and said, Hey, um, you work for the, do you, do you know the president of your company? And I said, well, yeah, I report directly to the president of my company. Why are you asking? And she said, well, I'm going to see him next week. So I'm going to let him know that nobody from your company could make the meeting. And I was like, okay, I understand how this works. Okay. Um, I'll be there. And that was Mary. And, and that's how I remember Mary, but Mary left behind two kids, a husband, and still to this day, a lack of identification of Mary as having been one that was killed that day. Um, you know, there's still, under a thousand, but close to a thousand people that haven't been firmly identified as being gone. And I would like to see her husband and kids get that closure, even 20 years later, be able to get that closure. Her parents, who I met because they lived in the Chicago area where I lived, I would love to see them get that closure. They missed her so, so much. Remembering people and sharing stories and that just like you did and uh, is a way of keeping the memory alive and it's so easy as everybody is so busy with their lives for people to kind of like 
get their head down, tail up and just crack on and, and get on with things. And I think it's really important that, that whenever there's uh, a situation where people have been uh, exposed and their lives have been taken without their intent or without maybe old age, because that's one that's more accepting sure. that, that we, that we really do take the time just to, to smile and remember the good memories that we have from those people and put more, more effort to kind of put time aside to do that, you know, and it's, it's almost Absolutely. like, it's almost like a school reunion, but in a, a different kind of way, maybe getting together once a year, once every couple of years to sit, sit and, uh, you know, swap stories, share a coffee, glass of wine or whatever it may be. And remember those, those good people that, innocently lost their lives absolutely i you know um stories i have them you know and 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 those become things that become part of the process of of memory because we talk about this all the time there were silver linings in that cloud of that day um the ability of all of us as a country all of us as a world there you know that day after that day there were no americans or europeans there were no black white there was no jew catholic there everybody was a human being um and those funny stories those happy stories those stories of of great success of somebody those are the things that help to carry on the spirits of the people who were so senselessly dashed that day there was a guy that was on the 90th floor with me who when I decided to exit, he said, yep, I think I'm going to do the same thing. But before I exit, I'm going to go use the restroom. And that two and a half minute delay in his exiting cost him his life because he didn't leave immediately. Great human being. Um, this man was an All-American American football player um, in college and was huge. Um, and his son called me a week and a half, two weeks after the event in his teens still at this point, have you seen my dad? Did you see my dad? And I told him that he was in the meeting with me and I told him that we were, we, we, we conversed on 90 and I don't know exactly what occurred after that. I didn't have the heart to tell him in that first phone call your dad went to the restroom and I think that means he didn't get out when he called again. I, and I apologized to him. I said, I'm so sorry. I didn't, I, you know, I can't tell you more. And he said, you've got him down 15 flights of steps. That's more than anybody else has. And just that feeling from him of, okay, there's a hope. And when he called two weeks later and said, did you think of any more? I said, well, I said, Andrew, I think you're ready for this. I said, uh, your dad was right behind me. He was with a couple of friends of his. He decided to go to the facilities before he made the rest of the trek. And there was a quiet gasp and then a chuckle. And I said, Andrew, wh why do you laugh? He says, that would be classic for my dad to go out with his pants down around his ankles. <laughs> and so everybody, and, and, and knowing this guy, I thought, said, you're right. I said, you know, you know your dad better than I do, okay? He would get a big charge out of that. Um, so those are the things we do. These are the, you know, there are 
a group of people that I'm associated with out of Chicago that are survivors of either the Pentagon or uh, the Trade Centers. And we talk about the bright sides and we talk about the funny things we saw and we talk about the incidences that we share in common because that's the way to get through the pain and the grief. And that's the way that we learn uh, to uh, do what we have to do to overcome those deep-seated feelings of, of whether it be hatred or fear or sorrow. It's, it's the way to heal, I guess, isn't it? Or part, our way partially to heal. Talk, talk to me about how your life changed. And you know, we spoke earlier on about you know, COVID affecting uh, our priorities in life. But tell me how, how things changed for you from that perspective. Because I'm sure that you would have... Oh, I'm not sure. I guess you'd fear going back into tall buildings again initially. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that, that was, that is absolutely a, a fact. Um, I, 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 have been fortunate to not have a lot of repercussion from the event in a bad way, but one of the things that I have decidedly been fearful of is going up into a high rise building. Several weeks after the event occurred, somebody asked me to do an interview in Chicago and they asked me to do an interview on the top of what was then the Sears Tower. They thought it would be a, a person like yourself who was looking for a story, thought this would be a really cool thing. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, you know where I was, you know what I saw. I'll meet you at the lobby if you want me to, but I am not going up. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, so I, I have um, unusual fear of high towers. I, I got promoted within the month after I got back from the Trade Center and they wanted to move me from the second floor to the 40th floor and I begged them, please, can I stay on the second floor? I can jump from there. Um, and they did, they, under, they understood. Uh, even though that 40th floor in the building was where I was supposed to be. How it's changed me, other than that, though, is, is the, the lessons in life that you can't take anything for granted. Each and every day is a blessing, right? And so you don't know what you're going to encounter within the next minute, let alone within the next 24 hours or 72 hours. So you have to you know, carpe diem, you have to seize the day, you have to appreciate the things that are right in front of you. Um, and you can't assume that it's going to be there next week. And whatever, whatever that it is, most importantly, you learn how to prioritize very, very well. Uh, my insurance career has been great. It's allowed me to live in a great home, live a nice life, raise my family well. That's not the most important thing in my life. The most important thing in my life are my wife, my children and grandchildren, my God. These are the things that count, the love of those who love me the most. So like we talked about, it makes you realize, yeah, I need to tell them I love them and they need to tell me they love me every day. We can't take any of this for granted. We don't know when we're going to see. 3,000 people that day made a simple decision to go to work. And they didn't get the chance to come home and <sighs> they didn't get the chance. 
it isn't fair. It isn't fair if they'd only known. And so, yeah, you can't take anything for granted and you have to really know what are the most important things. You love doing your podcast, but you said to me earlier, most important thing was being able to see your mom, being able to see your kids, being able to give them hugs, being able to do the things that you haven't been able to do for 18 months. Um, that's the most important thing. And that's what's changed in my life, most importantly. I don't, I don't want it to take an event like 9-11 or even an event like COVID for people to really get that. I, I, yeah. I, want, I want people to, how many times have people had a parent that passed away uh, and they had an argument the day before uh, or something happened where they, they just wish that they had said this or they wish that they had done that. They just wish that they could turn back the clock just 24 hours. So, and, and, they're, and they're left with that for the rest of their life. They're left holding on to that for the rest of their life and not able to let it go because there's no one to let it go to. It's, we, we, we really do need so many of us. You know, I remember being a youngster and I had my buddies and we'd go out on a Friday night and my dad said to me, you'll be able to count your real friends on one hand, Spencer. Dad, you know nothing. We, you know, we're a little bit of a gang, boys. You know, we go out, we do our thing. He's like, they're not all your friends. He said, remember that. And, oh, Dad, you don't know anything. And then as obviously I got older, I started to realize that he was, he was absolutely spot on. But there's so much joy that you can take from just doing simple stuff with the people that actually matter. You don't need to be going to the, the Super Bowl final. You don't need to be, you can just be sat literally in the garden, light the barbecue and just talk. Because that's right. That's the special stuff. And I'm so glad that I have the ability to know that. And I just wish all of our listeners, and I know I know the listeners that are right now are watching or listening, will be listening and saying, you're right, Spence, you're right, Spence, and thinking to themselves that they do that. But we, we all could make that more of an effort. And we all have to realize that our job isn't, isn't everything. Human, human nature makes you want to do sometimes the wrong thing okay i i kid all the time you know people that'll hear my presentation i say when you go home tonight and your 17 year old has that pair of jeans in the same spot on the floor that you asked them to move it from five weeks ago don't get so upset about it i mean think about what's important we have a finite number of days we have a finite number of hours and minutes and if you're going to spend them getting yourself boxed up about all the wrong stuff. You're just wasting that time that you could have had to do just like you said, sit, talk, have fun. We were sitting here this weekend with our family from Arizona. Do you want to do anything? Do you want to go anywhere? And everybody was like, no, let's just sit and talk to each other and have fun and play a game and do this. And do it's phenomenal. And, and, and these are the things that you, you, you can't lose sight of in your busy business days. I mean, listen, money, business, work, means to an end, no doubt about it. Makes you have a great life, makes you be able to send your kids to college, makes you, those are all important things. 
but keep it in perspective. And that is the greatest lesson learned uh, that, that I had that day, because I was one of those type A's, work, 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 make some money, do this, da, 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 run to here, run to there. And you know what? I almost lost all that. And for what? And for what? To lose my family and to lose my friends. So, yeah, um, you're right on. Your listeners should listen to you. <laughs> Talk to me about your, your relationship with with your faith and your God. T talk to me about how that evolved over the course of that time. Did it did it get stronger? Did you, you know was there any resentment? I mean, obviously you were, you we could class you as lucky, but I'm sure there'll be lots of people out there that will be asking, you know, their God, why me or why my family? Why would you do this? Why would you even do this? Okay. If you're a loving God, why would you even do this? Um, fortunately for my, for, for my, my own sake, I had pretty good faith. When you're born and raised in Philadelphia, you almost don't have a choice but to be Catholic. Okay. So you're born and raised Catholic and I have a classic Catholic family and the faith was pretty strong. Okay. Pretty good. And actually having that amount of faith allowed me that day to understand why I had that faith. It actually was a great precursor for this because I think you need to have three things on a day like 9-11. You need to have an ability to make good critical decisions. You need to have luck. You mentioned it. There's no doubt you need luck. And if you don't believe in divine providence after an event like that, you're never going to believe. So this just bolstered what I already believe, because there is no way I could have gotten through the events of that day from where I was and the circumstances that I was involved in, had I not had a guiding hand on my shoulder to make the right decisions so that I would not stop, so that I would not delay, and so that I would get out. So it's just bolstered what I've already believed. I'm not going to win the prize for the greatest Catholic in the world, the greatest Christian in the world. That my my thing is there is somebody there there is somebody to guide me and thank god literally thank god that i had it that day so that's that's how it's bolstered yeah you do get you do get that question why would you do this why 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 would you do this and then you think to yourself okay so what do i do you saved me you helped me so what do i do and that's the 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 the, the uh, aftermath that we as survivors need to learn how to deal with what do you do with that second chance if given that second chance and for me it's been the presentations and speeches and whatnot so talk to me then about you must have a sense of duty oh, oh i mean not even not even a, a shadow of a doubt when it dawned on me I'm not handy. I can't build things. I'm not extremely rich, so I can't just be as philanthropic as I, I would like to be. But I can talk, which you've heard. <laughs> um, it dawned on me that, okay, what do I do? This is what I do. I keep the memory of 3,000 alive. I become their voice because their voices were taken from them that day. So I become a voice for them. Uh, I allow their spirits that were so senselessly dashed that day 
to once more rise, reminding all of us that while they may have lost their lives, they weren't lost in vain. This is an obligation. This is a duty. This is why I do what I do. And as I mentioned to you before, I do these presentations that I do, 50 to 60 a year uh, sans the COVID. Um, and I do this for free. And I do it on my time and my dime. And it's because I have to. It's because I have to. And my kids, great kids, all adults, have said, you know, Dad, you're good at this. You have a great story. Go on the speaker circuit. You would be terrific. And I said, I can't do that. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, the speaker circuit that you're talking about is a paid job. It becomes your full-time job. I can't take money on the back of the backs of 3,000 people who lost their lives that day. This is not something that I could ever, ever do. When you have that sense of duty like you do, it becomes way, way more powerful and compelling. And so you're absolutely right. Accepting money for it wouldn't, wouldn't be the right thing to do. It would, ruin, it, would, it would ruin the whole spirit. You're absolutely right. It, it's great that there are people out there like you that are doing what you're doing. And you should, you should really remember that what you do makes a big difference to people. No matter how insignificant or small sometimes it is, there'll be people right now that are listening to this right now that probably have a tissue in their hand <laughs> listening to you and being grateful that they're hearing this from you today. So don't ever underestimate the power of it. I appreciate that. That's a, that's a kind thing to say. It, it, it has only taken almost 20 years for that to sink into my head a little bit more um, because I really do many times say, hey, I'm just a guy, but I have a story and I have a memory and I have a picture that I can paint for you so that you can understand it. It is amazing. It is amazing how after 20 years you do one of these presentations and people will come up to you afterwards and say, oh my God, I do. I remember where I was. Oh my God, you made me cry. Oh my God, you made me actually laugh during this. And it's amazing that we're able to get through all this. And I said, this is the thing. There are children that don't have any idea of what happened on 9-11. And I get to talk with college and high school students. They have no clue. And I tell them all the time, you are proof positive that your parents had faith that we could work through this. Because why else would you have, why else would you bring a child into this world after a horrendous event like that? And it's because they have confidence, they have faith, they have love that they believe we can carry on. And um, the kids will look at you and go, wow, I never thought of it like that. I guess I'm special. And I said, yeah, of course you are. Of course you are. Uh, and if they don't tell you enough, they love you beyond anything you could ever imagine because they brought you into this world. And so it is, it's a, it's, uh, it's something that continues to amaze me even 20 years later, how much of an impact um, a simple story can have. Hopefully all of you listening to this right now and watching this can sense the enormity of what Joe went through.
I, for one, have thoroughly enjoyed listening to him talk to us today. And I just want to say a big, big thank you for taking the time and coming to share your story with us, Joe. It really, it really is important. And as this episode will be coming out um, on the anniversary date, I think it's going to be comforting for people that there are people like you there doing what you do. So thank you so much for coming to join us on the show. You've given me a great opportunity and I thank you. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.